Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Amen. The Word of God for our special consideration this Sunday is found in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, verses 14 through 27, as is printed in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if we were to make a list of the 10 or 20 words that almost nobody wants used to describe them, greedy would probably be close to the top of the list. Just about no one wants to be seen or to see themselves as as motivated or characterized by greed. Because while everybody usually sees wealth and prosperity as good things, giving yourself over to a selfish, grubbing, unhinged desire for such things is seen as a major character flaw. But like many such character flaws, Greed is something that is seen clearly in other people, but hardly perceived in oneself. We might accuse someone else of it, but recoil in shock and outrage if we are accused of it. In fact, most of us as Christians are probably at least a little like the young man in today's gospel, who would scoff at the idea that that we have ever taken riches and made an idol of them. After all, we know and worship the true God and and probably even try to remember to, to give him credit for the good things we have, at least once a year on Thanksgiving. But even if our attitude toward the accumulation of good things is not quite equivalent to idolatry, it often still exhibits an equally dangerous habit that also damages or destroys our relationship with the Lord, calling His love, goodness, and wisdom into question, which is failing to trust Him fully. We can call it second-guessing God. When we start thinking, I need this amount of money, or or that new thing, or these conditions to change, or my life won't be good, we are saying to God, yeah, you really don't know what you're doing with my life. I should have more. I should be happier. Either you have made a mistake, Lord, or you're just not as committed to me as you said you were. As with many sins and spiritually dangerous attitudes, lots of people would realize that this is an unwise, bad thing, if it were pointed out to them, though it rarely is. But others would not particularly care and and would just press on. They want what they want, they believe they need what they believe they need, and, and that's all that matters. Our story today from 2 Kings 5 begins with someone that we might say had a good reason for second-guessing God in this way because he started off not knowing any better. Naaman was the commander of the armies of the king of Aram, sometimes called Syria. He was an important and powerful man. And it was pretty much his job to be hostile to the kingdom of Israel and everything associated with it. 
But despite his power and prestige, Naaman had a problem. He had leprosy and had it bad. One day, the Israelite slave girl who served his wife mentioned that the prophet in Samaria, Israel's capital, could heal Naaman's leprosy. And since he was desperate for a cure, he got permission from his king to go there. He assumed that such a healing would come at a high price. And so he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. That's about 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, plus a small fortune in the clothes. He viewed the entire thing as a transaction, just as it would be with his Aramean gods. You pay to get what you want. If you don't pay, you don't get. And the bigger the ask, the bigger the price. Now, when Naaman appeared in Samaria, the king of Israel accused the king of Aram of trying to start a conflict with him by by sending and asking him to do what no king could do. But God told Elisha the prophet what was going on. And he sent word to his unbelieving king that Naaman should be sent to him for healing. So when this powerful leper shows up outside Elisha's house with all his chariots and his entourage, Naaman expects something impressive, something to match the value of the transaction he came to make. But instead, Elisha speaks to the man through a messenger and tells him simply, go, Wash yourself uh, seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And this is where Naaman second-guesses God. He goes away angry, complaining that Elisha didn't come and wave his hand over his leprosy or perform some ritual or even require Naaman to do some great deed or pay some great price. He complained that if he were just going to wash in some river, he'd rather do it in the cleaner rivers back home in Damascus. In effect, he was saying to the Lord, you don't know what you're doing. I have a better idea how you can make me happy. But of course, since he did not yet know the Lord or his power, Naaman did not yet realize How foolish this was. But his servants at least knew a little better than their master. And they said to him, essentially, if the prophet had told you to do some difficult thing, wouldn't you have done it? So why not at least do this simple thing and wash in the Jordan as Elisha said? Naaman couldn't really argue with that. They made good sense. And that's where our reading today picks up with 2 Kings 5.14. So he went down and dipped in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. 
Then his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a small child, and he was clean. Just like that. His leprosy was gone. Turns out the Lord did know better and did have his best interests in mind. And that's all it took to change Naaman's mind and and heart. Then he and his whole escort went back to the man of God. He stood in front of Elisha and said, To be sure, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, accept a gift from your servant. Naaman confessed his new faith in the Lord, the God of free and faithful grace. And in gratitude for what had been done for him by God through Elisha, he offered a gift from the abundance that he had brought with him. But the prophet understood that a new faith like Naaman's would not be served well if he got the impression that the Lord and his servants were pay-to-play like his former gods and their servants. If Elisha accepted a gift, it it would too easily be seen as a, a payment for services rendered. The healing would no longer be understood as a gift of grace, but rather as an economic transaction. So Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, in whose presence I stand, I will not take anything. Even though Naaman urged him to accept something, he refused. Then Naaman said, If you do not want anything, please give me, your servant, as much dirt as two donkeys can carry. For your servant will never again burn incense or sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to bow down there, and he supports himself on my arm, then I too have to bow down in the house of Rimmon. When I bow down in the house of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. This was a real problem. No believer in the Lord, especially a young one, wants to even give the impression that he is bowing down to worship a false god. And Naaman knew that his duties to his king would make it appear that he was doing so. But the Lord's prophet understood. He wanted Naaman's heart to be settled. And then Elisha said to him, Go in peace. And that was a real problem for Elisha's servant, Gehazi. Gehazi is one of the few servants of anyone in the Old Testament referred to by name. And he had played a significant role in his master's ministry to this point. We would like to think that spending so much time with a man of God would have somehow automatically fine-tuned his faith and aligned his heart with the Lord's. But it appears that he was not happy with his situation in life, which meant he was not happy with Elisha's no-cost healing of Naaman, which means that he was second-guessing God. When Naaman had gone some distance from him, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, My master was too easy on this Aramean Naaman when he did not accept anything that he brought. 
As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Note how easily the oath Elisha had used, as surely as the Lord lives, flowed from Gehazi. He undoubtedly found a way to to rationalize his greed with, with some kind of pious thoughts about how this would give God greater honor or, or help him, Gehazi, to serve his master better without concern for his future financial well-being or something. But essentially what he was saying was still, God, you really don't know what you're doing with my life. I should have more wealth and more stuff and that Aramean should have less. I should be happier. You've made a mistake, Lord, or you're just not as committed to my good as I'd been led to believe. So Gehazi chased after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. He said, is everything all right? Then Gehazi said, yes, everything is all right. My master sent me to say, look, just now two young men from the hill country of Ephraim, from the sons of the prophets, have come to me. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. It was a clever and quite credible lie. And by not asking for a huge amount, he didn't arouse any suspicions. You can tell Gehazi had been thinking things through. We also see how one sin gives birth to other sins. And it was also an effective lie because the former leper was still eager to share his wealth with the servants of the Lord. Naaman said, Certainly, take two talents. He urged Gehazi and tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with the two sets of clothing. Then Naaman gave them to his two servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. So Gehazi's deception gained him about 150 pounds of silver. Naaman was even so generous as to lend his own servants to carry the gift so so Gehazi wouldn't have to. But Gehazi needed to make sure his own master didn't see what was going on. When he came to the hill, he took the gifts from them. Then he hid them in the house and sent the men back, so they left. Then he went in and attended his master. We should never... Stop being astonished at how foolish sin can make a person, even someone who should know the Lord better than most. Gehazi actually thought that he had successfully fed his greed without being seen, even though he himself had witnessed on more than one occasion how the God who sees all things gave his prophet knowledge of things he otherwise could not have known. Elisha said to him, Where were you, Gehazi? Gehazi said, Your servant didn't go anywhere. Then Elisha said to him, Didn't my heart go along when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take silver or to accept clothes or olive groves, or vineyards, or sheep, or cattle, or male and female servants. No matter how good Gehazi made his greed look, his second-guessing God did not go unnoticed. 
How could it? The Lord knows everything. And the mere idea that that we think we know better than he does about what he should be doing to make us wealthier or happier or whatever does not mean that we actually do know better. We do not, and we never will. God's knowledge is perfect. His love is perfect. His commitment to bless His people is perfect. And His wisdom is infinitely beyond ours. But still we find ourselves following Gehazi's lead rather than Elisha's. Our sinful natures want what they want and too frequently convince us that we need what we really do not need. And then we too, second-guess God's goodness and wisdom. We often even try to reframe our covetousness and resentments in ways that sound almost righteous, as, just as Gehazi did. This job I have, it pays the bills, but it isn't any fun. God should give me Ralph's job, which I don't think he deserves, because God should want me happy. You know, if I had better clothes, I'd give others a better impression of Christians. Everyone around me always has new and shiny things. They'll never listen to what I have to say about Jesus if I don't also have new and shiny things. Even more cleverly, some second-guess God by claiming to have others' interests at heart. It is not fair. It's, it's not just that person A has more wealth and opportunities than person B. I don't think person A deserves it. So I am going to work to, to make sure that it is taken away from A and given to B. And then they seek to use the courts or, or the power of the government to pick winners and losers, presuming to administer justice, but really only feeding resentments or settling scores, and often either enriching themselves in the process or at least bringing down others in comparison. And sometimes our second-guessing God has little to do with wealth or opportunity and is nothing but childish insistence on getting one's own way presuming that what makes you happy is the only possible definition of what is good and right. And if God doesn't give it, well, then God's wrong. and We have to make it happen ourselves. The Lord's judgment on Gehazi, announced by Elisha, should wake us up to the seriousness of this. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went out from his presence, leprous like snow. It was an awful but reasonable punishment. Naaman had come to exchange his silver for freedom from his leprosy. And though Elisha refused the transaction, Gehazi happily freed Naaman of his silver and ended up with his leprosy. There is a judgment worse than a skin disease, awaiting all those who foolishly presume to second-guess God. It is the eternal torment of damnation to hell. 
And it is what every one of us deserves by nature because of our sins. It is serious, horrible, permanent, painful, and well-merited. We cannot talk or negotiate our way out of it, and there is no payment that we can make to escape it. But thank God that we have a Lord, a Lord of mercy who heals not only the diseases of the body, but also the greater disease of sin and death. What we cannot do for ourselves, He did for us. Because all things are possible for God. The Father sent His Son to take on human flesh and be our perfect substitute in life and in death. And by His suffering and death, Jesus took away the sins of all the world and exchanged them for His perfect righteousness. When we put our trust in Him and His work for us, our sins are all forgiven. And we are made holy, clean, and eternal life in heaven is ours. At no cost to us, though it cost Christ everything. Knowing this, knowing that when we seek the Lord, we live because He is a God of free and faithful grace and undying love for us despite our sins, knowing this, then we make it our goal to always trust His wisdom and goodness, to be patient and to be content with His gifts and and to no longer second-guess His decisions for our lives. And knowing that our greed and grasping and grubbing and our covetousness and our fetching and our complaining are all forgiven for Christ's sake, well, then we keep our lives from the love of money. We do not look beyond our own marriage bed to satisfy our desires. We love others and especially love our brothers and sisters in Christ by putting their needs and interests ahead of our own. In this world, with its constant cravings and pushings for more, 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 and with our our sinful natures only too happy to add discontent and desire to the world's enticements, it is all too easy to fall into the trap of second-guessing God's loving provision for us. The cost of that is far too steep to be ignored or, or allowed into our lives. So instead, we remember what what Jesus said when his disciples wondered, given all these realities, whoever could still be saved? For people, he said, it is impossible, but not for God, because all things are possible for God. And we know that he will be gracious to us and bless us in the way that is actually best for us in all things and at all times, regardless of how it might seem to us with our puny human reason. He can be trusted to give you what you need. And you can have joy in his gifts, whether they seem little or large. The same God who sent His Son to the cross for our sake is the one in charge of our lives. So we can and do 
say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. This, this is the Lord. We trust in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen.